welcome to Fragments, the podcast from the Centre for Blast Injury Studies at Imperial College London. I'm Sarah. I'm Shruti. And I'm Anthony. So today we're here with uh, Professor Anthony Bull. He is the head um, the Centre for Blast Injury Studies. Um, so we thought we'd have a chat, I guess, talk about the importance of what we do, of university research, how it's relevant to the real world, and a bit more about kind of the different parts of, of the centre. So, Anthony, would you um, introduce yourself, please? Sure. So I'm Anthony Bull. And uh, I've been working in this area since about 2008, so I'm in my 12th year almost. And uh, I've been pretty excited to be involved in this because it's an opportunity for academic research to have real societal benefit. And it's something that I identified really early on in this work. And I'm sure we can talk about that as we go through um, some specifics. Um, personally, I'm uh, an academic who does bioengineering which is engineering applied to medicine and the life sciences Um, and that's really important because we know that engineers already have massive medical effects so for example there are famous Victorian engineers who did the sewage system in London and saved many more lives than than most engineers do in their lifetime Um, but bioengineers specifically have to have this understanding of the human body how it functions and I think in blast injury studies we have great expertise in the Ministry of Defence, for example, uh, people who you know, design protective equipment, who design vehicles. We have these amazing medics who save lives and the whole sort of logistics and evaluation, uh, evacuation processes that work really well. But what is missing and what society probably doesn't have enough of are the people who actually understand how the physical world interfaces with the human body. And that's really where the Centre for Blast Injury Studies does something quite different and new and unique. And I'm really pleased to be involved in that. I think you've explained the centre a lot more eloquently than we have previously. Um, But I I think it's interesting that you pick up that engineers do save a lot of people in ways. I think that when you're growing up, you think, I want to help people, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, My dad's a doctor and I tell him, you know, engineers have saved more lives than doctors over the years, kind of as a tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, both are important. But I think, yeah, working together in that interface... I agree with you. I think there's there's a... um I mean, we can be flippant and say, yeah, medics can save one life at a time and engineers can save hundreds of lives Mm -hmm. at a time. Um, And that's flippant. But I think it does demonstrate that as engineers, you're often removed from that personal interface and that personal contact. And then if you're an academic, um, you're even further removed frequently. And I think that's why it's exciting for me to be involved in this, because it just brings me that bit closer. And in the centre, I'm sure you've spoken about this before, we have people who are embedded within the centre who are themselves recipients of the benefits that the research from the centre um, has provided. So we have um, military war wounded who are working in the centre. We have the medics who have served them and saved their lives and who are involved in their rehabilitation in the centre, doing their research, making improvements. And I think bringing it really close is something that we value here. And you don't often get it in universities. I think that's something quite unique to the centre, I think, isn't it? That it's not only that people working in so many different disciplines are working together as people that have benefited they're not just academics like they've been there and they know what they're talking about and it's it's yeah I'll never forget um the the second orthopedic surgeon military orthopedic surgeon he was in the navy and he had been in Afghanistan he'd done uh, two or three months tour there and I asked him to come and present to us and he, he he stood up and the first thing he said was this summer I amputated 60 limbs right that was his summer summer job and um, it really brought it home to us. So he had been there on the front line, effectively, saving lives and doing something that most jobbing trauma surgeons might do once a year. He did 60 of them one summer. Amazing. 
yeah. that's how close it is to us. It's, it's incredible. I know having having not served and been down that academic group, I've really benefited from having the others around who we talk to um, in the department, in the office, because we can learn so much. I work quite um, closely with one of the physio, well, the physio um, in our office who, who was military or is military. And um, the things that he says, and I'm like, I just don't think about it. And we talk to the civilian physios as well um, to, for the kind of purposes of research and learning. But there is such a different experience that I don't think you can get just from reading about it in journals or watching TV or the news or something. There's something about having those people to talk to, which, which is so beneficial to the rest of the research as well. That's right. And then we also, in the context of that, have to remember that in the academic domain, you don't just listen to one voice. You actually have to be able to incorporate all of those things and come up with serious research questions um, that are more broadly applicable. And so the single voice is important for motivation, for context, to point you in the right direction. But then as a researcher, you need to go a lot further than that. And I think the rigour that, that we require is so important. We're not just there to listen to one voice. I think you've mentioned kind of the, the academic domain, the medical domain, but I don't know, how, how have you found kind of the bridging that gap and integrating both of those sort of domains together? Is there something you think that makes what we do at CBIS so successful compared to maybe how, how it might be elsewhere? I think there are lots of reasons for success. Um, in academia, people talk about T-shaped researchers. Don't roll your eyes. You've heard me talk about this before. Oh, we've talked about it as well. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think that's important. And all those things require investment and effort. So we point towards leadership. Leadership is important. You have to have individuals who buy into the vision, who buy into the mission, and who are committed to it and can bring resource to play, to bear on that. Um, and that's what we've been able to do. And the resource comes from many different sources, but the leadership is there that actually brings in that resource and, and, and drives a certain direction. So I think that's absolutely key. Why are we successful? Well, success is something you can say we are, but maybe, you know, it's, that's for other people to judge. Um, I think that we have really good people. That's what it's about. We put them in the same room. We get them to talk to one another. We have fantastic military commitment and support. Uh, it's totally unusual. It's particularly unusual when you, when you compare it to other research areas that are related to the, to the military domain, where frequently that research is done separately from the academic environment. And by bringing academia in, you do a number of things. One, you bring in excellence. We have brilliant students here. We have really good colleagues here. So you bring that kind of international leading excellence. That's the first thing. The second thing that you do is you provide continuity. Frequently in research establishments that aren't universities, like in the Ministry of Defence or the Department of Defence in America, is people are posted and they do a few years in one role and then a few years in another role. They get promoted, they move around. And in fact, continuity in research is really important because you, you get this kind of domain expertise and it goes very, very deep. And I think it's very hard to maintain that outside a university environment. And so what we do is we provide that... Um, well, that body of knowledge, we maintain it, we develop it and we grow it for others to access it and others to use it as well. So it's not just an activity that is our own here, it's actually for others to come into and access. Um, and so that's why we're in it for the long haul. So although you two as PhD students may be in it just for a short time, um, for a number of years, actually the centre will be here and will continue to maintain that. And that's our commitment 
of course it's our commitment as long as we can resource it and all of that but we are committed to that and I think that's that's one of the key things that we do that I don't think anyone else can do. imagine in industry imagine you know people get promoted they move away whereas you know I'm a professor in a university I mean that is for life right I'm going to be here for a long time most people don't retire anymore so you know I might be doing this when I'm 80 still um, and that would be okay because it would provide that continuity um, and that body of knowledge then is useful to others. So you've been involved in the centre from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's basically two conflicts. Yeah. How have you seen blast injury? Have you seen it change? Oh, I mean, that's an interesting question. <laughs> and that's a hard question. That's why we have a historian. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, I was, um, so I've been reading Emily Mayhew's book and she's talk, she talks about... I think it's Afghanistan, they, they see a move from one amputation to two or three as the blast become more powerful. Yeah. Is that something that you see in research as well? Is yeah, that so adapted? Uh, it's not as the blast become more powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that we save lives better. Okay. That's the reason I would say um, that's not proven because it's very hard to get the kind of data from historical conflicts of who died and how many amputations they had that caused their death. It's really hard to do that, right? <laughs> um, but... Um, but I think it's because we're better at saving lives. So our, is it 245 major amputees from Afghanistan? No, the number changes depending on where you look. Yeah, have um, you know an average of 1.7 amputations each. So that means the most common amputation is a double above knee in those survivors. Um, and we still see fatalities, obviously, with those kinds of injuries, but far fewer than we might have expected. So have we seen any difference? No, we haven't. I think blast injury is blast injury. I mean, each conflict will have specific things about it that make it different. Um, even civilian um, blast injuries, even historical civilian blast injuries that I've looked at, uh, they're extremely similar um, and uh, shockingly so. I think what was particularly relevant in Afghanistan was the bomb outside person inside um, in a vehicle where the bombs were big enough to cause these, these structural damage to the vehicles, which then resulted in a different type of blast injury than you would normally see, but one that was still you know, present historically, as we saw with the deck slap injuries in the Second World War and prior to that. So we've seen them all before. It's just the prevalence of one type might increase due to the environment or whatever, um, sadly. But we're better at saving lives. So that's one of the things I find doing historic research is that people tend to forget every time there's a war it's like we have to relearn. Yeah, and oh, goodness me, that frustrates us to heck. Uh, we are so frustrated by it. Um, in fact, medical things have to be relearned, which is so depressing. I think the UK is in a good position now, much better position. One, actually, the Centre for Blast Injury Studies. So we see it as our mission, one of our things that we do, is we publish the learning. So... Our research, might, we might be doing really detailed, you know, ivory tower science that's going to change the world in a hundred years' time, but not now. We might be doing some of that. But what we also do is we also capture learning and knowledge and promulgate that and publish it. Um, I mean, that's what universities do, right? They develop new knowledge and they communicate it and then they translate it. And I think in the centre, we do those things pretty well and we're committed to those. Um, so, so I need to come back to your point, which is... Um, that we have learned all these things, um, but we still haven't learned all the things. And so we are still mining the knowledge and the learning from the recent conflicts and making sure that we, that we promulgate that. Um, so that's, that's one side on the research side and maybe immediate medical treatment. But I think the UK did something really good a number of years ago when we centralised our major trauma care 
into these major trauma centers. Um, that was strategically important, it was clinically very beneficial, and it allows expertise to be developed in, in regions where civilian trauma care has been significantly enhanced. And the military learning is now directly translated in that, into that civilian trauma care, which means that what the military have learned is not being lost anymore. It's being maintained and developed, and then the US are, 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 are trying to do similar major trauma center setups. Um, and so I think we're actually leading the world in that way. It's, it's fantastic. So yes, as a historian, you may say we've lost a lot and we've forgotten things and we have to relearn them. I think we're doing a little bit better now, I hope. It's interesting though, because I mean, as we learnt with the Rhodesia War, this was an early piece of work that we did in the Centre for Blast Injury Studies where we were given access to data on um, vehicle modifications and the effect that they had on injuries and fatalities in vehicles due to explosive devices. So it was effectively the same kind of thing that was happening in Afghanistan. And they did V-shaped hulls, greater standoff, um, you know, wider wheelbase, heavier vehicles, heavier wheels, all of this sort of stuff. And they meticulously kept records to see what effect it had on fatalities and injuries. And that information was not used and learned from. It was lost. Now, we got hold of it, we published it decades later, and that has helped, we believe, and certainly will help in the future, the design of vehicles, protective vehicles. So that was a specific example of knowledge being lost. Ter terrible, actually, and I'm sure that um, there were fatalities as a result of that. But you then balance that with the military imperative. You know, what are they trying to do? They're trying to, you know, achieve their military aim, and that might mean that you can't have heavy vehicles. It might mean that you need light vehicles and all of these things. So somebody in another place has to make a different type of decision. That's not what we do in the centre. We provide the knowledge and the information and then somebody else makes the decision. And I prefer it that way. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the academic stuff and we've touched on the translation. How do we, as a centre, as, as, an, as an academic institution, make sure that our research does get to the point where it can have real-life impact. Okay, so this is a broader discussion. It could be about any research that you're talking guess, about, yeah. actually, not yeah. just in the centre, although the centre does its own thing as well. Yeah. I think, I, I think there are certain academics who are really tuned into this, and there are uh, some academics who aren't, and that's act actually fine. So the first, the primary thing that we do and we really subscribe to this at this institution and most other institutions, is our research is published. It's open for peer review, it's open for critique, and it's open to the world. And we subscribe very, str very strongly to the idea that all our publications and our research outputs should be available to everyone. And so we're strongly encouraged to publish things in journals that are available anywhere on the web, and nobody has to pay to access them, for example. So whatever you do in your PhD, we would want it to be published, to be peer-reviewed, to be critiqued, and then there will be a body of work that will be available to everybody anywhere. So that's the first key thing. So you don't actually have to think about translation because those people who are good at translating and who are motivated for that should be able to pick up on it. Now, within a university we also say actually that we are committed to doing that, or at least doing as much of that translation piece as we can possibly do within the, the university recognising that there are certain steps that need to be taken that have to be taken outside the university. And so it gets complicated because it depends on the area you're talking about. If it's high energy physics, 
if it's creating a widget that you put on the bottom of a vehicle to stop someone's heel getting fractured, there are different routes to translation. And so within the university, we have something that most universities call the Technology Transfer Office. And this is a group of people, of experts, who will be assessing the kind of research outputs that come from the university, specifically, and then assessing what needs to be done to move them on this translational line. And that might mean, actually, just talking to a company and saying, we've got this great idea, we know it's going to make a difference to you, um, we'll license it to you and, and go on, you translate it. We'll have nothing else to do with it at this point. And that happens, that's called licensing. There are other things where quite a bit more development work might need to be done for it to be translated. And you can imagine that you've come up with some fantastic medical device and that will need to go through a load of development and design. Um, it will have to go through all the regulatory approvals so that it could be used as a medical device. That costs millions. You have to do clinical trials where you test it on people to see whether or not it, it's safe. And then you test it on people to see whether or not it works. And those are two different questions. Um, and then, only at that point, will it actually be allowed to be used. Now, no university can do all of that. But there are earlier steps within that process that a university can do. And frequently universities do that by um, developing small companies called spin-out companies where they license the technology to that company. But the academics, all the researchers who are involved in it themselves, are also involved in the company because they have that domain expertise. And then they, they hurry up, they accelerate those st first steps before it then needs to go into something bigger and then it'll be sold on to some big company or whatever. Um, so it's complicated, and it's very specific to different individual areas. But I think it's interesting to be able to understand the university's role in that, because I know a lot of people that don't necessarily realise the ins and outs of it. So I would like to say that we in the centre are a mixture of medics, scientists and engineers, but we are very engineering focused. Yeah. Engineers, are f at their core, create new technologies. It could be a computer software, it could be a pair of glasses, it could be the microphone we're, we're speaking into now. They create technology, they design it, they maintain it, they operate it, they iterate it, they improve it. Um, that's, what, that's what engineers do. And so engineering researchers, which some of us are here in this room, what engineering researchers do is they create the fundamental research that allows that whole process to go better. And so you have some engineering researchers who do research on the design process. We don't do that. They do research on um, an underlying algorithm, like a, um, a computer software, let's say, that allows you to design something in a very different way. Okay. Those are the kinds of things that we do here. But because we're engineering heavy and engineering focused, we actually want to also engineer as well. We don't just do the research on engineering, we also want to engineer, which means we want to translate. And I think that's where engineering researchers are perhaps a little bit different from some other researchers. And I'm not saying that other researchers aren't translationally minded, but it's more in our DNA as engineers. Yeah. You know, engineering education, for example. Engineering education, you know, we, I don't know how much of our engineering degrees includes maths, huge amounts, right? As much as many other um, subjects. But we tend not to focus too heavily on the derivation of, from first principles of these, of these mathematical tools that we use. We just understand them and then use them. And so we have a very different approach, I think, in engineering. Um, and it's something that, you know, has always um, 
been a strength of this institution, it's been at the core of this institution, um, and it's something that has been enhanced by the medical school coming into this institution because it allows our engineering to now have a translation and an outlet that is not just in the traditional engineering domains, but it's also in the medical domain. I've definitely noticed that because I'm, I'm based at Charing Cross Hospital and I've actually got the, some medical students working with me at the moment who are interested in bioengineering and seeing the translation. So it's really interesting to, see, to work with them and see it from their perspective because they want to get better at their maths and their programming and they're doing a, um, a project with me. Um, I love that. I love great. that at this place. Um, I, um, so um, I don't know if you know, but in, in, in medicine, medicine is basically a five-year degree. Yeah. But almost all medical schools now in the country seem to do this six-year thing where in the middle they add an extra year and they give them a BSc in something specialised. Anyway, last academic year, so 2017-18, well, for many years we have been hounded in bioengineering by medical students saying, why can't we do our BSc year in biomedical engineering? Why can't we do it? Because we're really interested in that. And of course, in our minds, yeah, it's obvious they should be doing that. So in 2017-18, we started a Bachelor of Science intercalated BSc for medics um, for the first time. And it's brilliant. So yeah. they, they don't do independent sole projects. So normally in these BSCs, they do individual projects. We put them in a team with engineers. And they do fantastic work. It's, it's really brilliant, as well as learning lots of new skills. So, yeah, I'm a big subscriber to that. Yeah. You know, putting people together in these interdisciplinary teams um, and embedding medicine at the heart of it. I think it's really important. And I think it helps us as bioengineers and the kind of the link between the bioengineers and the medical community as well. And, and the people who essentially we work with to, to, to translate something and create something beneficial. Because um, I've also been, been teaching on... Um, I helped out on the coding for medics course um, and the computational medicine. So they're courses that Imperial do, which are designed for um, medics to be able to teach them some at least basic programming and potentially they carry on with it. And um, one, I had one student on the coding for medics um, course um, in January who was like, "But why is this important?" They did it because they thought it was interesting. But and I was like, "Well." I don't. I have medical knowledge in the area to allow me to do the engineering to create the technology that I'm creating. But if I'm working with doctors, physiotherapists, you know, anyone who has a broader medical knowledge but can appreciate where I'm coming from as an engineer, it makes that process. It means we can work more cohesively together because we both have an understanding of all sides of it, um, which I think is really important. I know that it helps kind of manage expectations quicker in terms of we can't just produce something overnight and it be perfect. It's, it's about the processes and things as what well. What a lovely description of a T-shaped researcher. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> when I was doing my PhD in, um, so I worked in orthopaedics mainly, and mm -hmm. I still obviously am doing a lot in, in sort of bones and joints now, and my PhD was in um, knee injuries basically in some way. I spent a huge amount of time in the operating theatre watching surgeries with the clinicians and that's where I learnt my trade, that's where I learnt the language of the clinician, that's where I learnt to understand it from their perspective, I learnt all the issues that they were dealing with, the decision making, um, the pressure that they are under, even in elective surgery which you can plan for, even that was a highly pressured environment. And so I learned a lot through that, and I think that's where I was slowly reaching out my arms to become a T-shaped researcher. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that people in the centre have that. Of course, it, it's different for everybody. Um, in fact, what I love now is that there are people who have graduated from biomedical engineering undergraduate degrees 
who pretty much already have that. You know, I didn't have that. I, I was a, you know, a metal basher, sort of a mechanical engineer. I didn't come from that at all. Um, but now these individuals sort of have it within their DNA from day one. You know, from day one they do medical science, you know, when they're 18. Um, this is stuff I've had to pick up and learn as I got older and my brain's a bit slower. And so they, they're able to see these connections that I can't. It's really fantastic. So I think that's where new disciplines sprout up, don't they? Yeah. Like these interfaces. I think bioengineering is quite, a, compared to a lot of engineering, we're quite a new engineering field. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, I know when I was looking to apply for universities, so I was well, 2011, even then there weren't many universities that did it. Um, you would have to go into mechanical engineering and then you could maybe do a few modules, whereas now there are so many more courses dedicated to it. I think. Yeah, I think there are 35 universities mm -hmm. that offer bioengineering undergraduate degrees <coughs> in the UK now. Yeah. That's okay. a lot. Sorry, you were going to say something? I was just going to say it would be interesting to see what happens to the medical students you had last year to see if they come back into it. Or That's right, yeah. yeah. So what, what we did was, it was really nice, we, um, so we have a capped number, uh, 40 students on the course, and half of them are Imperial College medical students, and half of them are non-Imperial College medical students, or dental students, or vets. And uh, so we had one vet and one dental student last year, for example, I can't remember this year who we've got. Um, but some of the ones who weren't Imperial College ones have already come back and said, oh, I want to do a PhD, I'm really interested. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they really want to do something that's interface. There's one who's actually in my group this year that I'm supervising. He is funded by his government, uh, Singaporean government, to do his medical degree, but in the middle, after his BSc, to do a PhD. And wow. he's going to do that in bioengineering from October. So... Um, I'm pretty excited about that uh, because he would have had this sort of engineering basis. I mean, not significant, only a year. Uh, he's super smart and brilliant and all of that sort of stuff as well, as so many of our students are. Um, so he's going to do some great stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and we attract really good students. So the, the one who won the award last year, Yusha, extremely special, special guy, really brilliant. He was the top student at Barts and the London Medical School and he came here to do the BSc and then has now gone back into his whatever year he's in there. Um, oh, wow. Really excellent. So I think it's very attractive to a certain type of person. Um, are we going to talk about BLAST a bit more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, obviously, our military-focused research in the, in the centre is funded by the Royal British Legion, but we also have other aspects of BLAST injury. We talk a lot about the, the BLAST injury stuff we do in the centre, but the project you're working um, out in Cambodia and Sri Lanka, is, is there a difference, do you find, between that type of research and the stuff we do? The yes, ones? there's a real difference, uh, but obviously there are lots of parallels. So fundamentally the difference is that in the military we have something unique that allows us to do our research, and that is the JTTR. That is the Joint Trauma Theatre Registry, or the other way around, anyway. Um, so that is a record of what happened, who was injured, when, how, what. And that record is unique. It's really, it allows us to do all the clinical research that we need to do to ask the right questions that then allows us to do all our engineering work. Um, so that's how we know how many amputees we have. That's how we know that we have people with these kinds of eye injuries. That's how we know that people died of this or not. Because we can mine that data and we can use it. When you go to Syria, where there are hundreds of thousands of amputees now, we don't have that data, right? 
And so we don't really know what are the most important medical questions to deal with. We just don't know that. Of course we can guess and we, can, we have an idea and we, we ask people, but we can't do it rigorously in the way that we can for in the Centre for Blast Injury Studies. So I'd say that's the most fundamental difference between them, and it's, it's really fundamental. However, blast injury is blast injury, right? So um, it's the same thing that we see. So we, we have um, a project that is in Sri Lanka mainly that is um, really exploring what are the clinical questions. They had conflict there for a long time. There are lots of legacy injuries that we need to deal with, so lots of sort of long-term orthopedic rehabilitation questions um, and prosthetic questions. Um, there's a lot of major trauma that is not blast, but actually results in the same kind of orthopedic problems. So we're doing some clinical work there. But we're also doing some technology work looking at reconstructive surgery um, that is very specific to that area, very specific to the technologies, the manufacturing that they have available, and to the skills and training of the clinicians. Now, a partner in that project is, um, is in Beirut, the American University of Beirut Medical Hospital, Medical Center, which is a regional center for treating blast injuries. People go to Lebanon to be treated yeah. from all over that region. So Iraq and Syria and, and places where um, there are loads of blast injuries. So they are helping us to really figure out what are the right questions to answer. And they're also involved in translating some of the knowledge that we've already gained over the past decade um, to their patients. So that's beneficial, it's fantastic. Um, there are differences, you know, in the paediatric stuff, we know that there are a lot more children that we will see. I mean, there were children in Iraq and Afghanistan, but that's not the data set that we are able to work with in the Center for Blast Injury Studies. But in our adjacent studies, yes, we need to focus on kids. Um, and we have found, so we've been involved in various things, like um, we've been involved in the um, Birmingham pub bombings inquest, for example, which is decades ago, but that really is analysing what happened. Could we have done it any differently? Um, why were the injuries the way they were? Understanding that in a way which actually uses our military knowledge in a civilian area, and hopefully in the future will allow us to do better in those situations, um, both medically but also in terms of the infrastructure and all of that. So I think that I think that the parallels are just, you know, they're massive and, and we can translate that knowledge. Um, but you really need to know what is the right clinical question to be answering. And that still is difficult in, in, in these war zones. You know, it's really difficult if, if it's because you just don't get the data from these civilians, you know. Um, their family are picking up the pieces. Uh, nobody knows. There's no NHS. Um, so we spoke, we interviewed Emily about the paediatric blast yeah. project um, and that was one of the things she said is they don't know the answers but they finally know what the questions Yeah, we hope so. So we've done this big literature review and we've engaged with a lot of clinicians who have seen these injuries, including a lot of the military people who've seen mm -hmm. a lot of paediatric blast injuries. Um, and so hopefully that work will be published. So that really is a gap analysis saying this is not known, we need to do research on this and that's important to be done. And then we need to do the research. Um, we need to secure a resource for that. We haven't yet secured a resource for that. Um, the Royal British Legion funds can't be used for that. Um, but, but I think we'll do it. We're committed to it. Something else that we've done that I think, I, I don't know if you've um, had on the podcast, is that we have collated um, 
sort of the up-to-date knowledge on sort of blast injury science and engineering in a book, uh, which was published a couple of years ago, and is really highly downloaded. So people are actually very interested in reading this. Um, and so we're now, um, as from this year, we're starting on a second edition of that because we've learnt a lot over the past number of years. So we'll be updating that. And of course, we'll include specific information on the paediatric stuff as well. Um, and as we've sort of moved more into the civilian domain, we've learned quite a lot more. So others will be able to, you know, benefit from our learning at least. Can we have the name of the book? Yeah, I think it's called, <laughs> let me look on my bookshelf. There you go, Blast Injury, Sci- Blast Injury Science and Engineering. I think technology thing, knowing how many have been downloaded and how many people are reading it at least helps our work's getting out there. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, in fact, when, um, when we thought we might want to update this, um, the first thing we did was figure out whether or not it's of any use to anyone. And mm-hmm. so because people are using it and downloading it and reading it and hopefully benefiting from it, then, then we realised we, uh, we should go for the second edition. Bit of hard work. Do an edition where you're uh, reading it so I can listen to it on the train. An audible version. An audible version. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. That would be terrible. This is not the kind of stuff. Um, there's quite a few gory pictures in here and stuff like that. It's, it's not the nice. I mean, if you look on my desk. So what are the other things on my desk here today? These are all new things that I've purchased in the last couple of weeks. Managing dismounted complex blast injuries in military and civilian settings. So there you go, that's dismounted, so that's not in vehicle, quite important. Much of the centre's early work was in vehicle. Um, mm-hmm. And then this one, which is an old book that I got second-hand from somewhere, Forensic Investigation of Explosions, uh, and has some really important chapters on looking at um, autopsy um, information, really, what we can learn from that. So, yeah, we're still, we're still learning from others, for sure. Yeah, just a, a normal day in Zebus. <laughs> it's it's horrible, yeah. It's horrible to be thinking about this, and and who would have thought, uh, you know, when I started my my degree in mechanical engineering that I'd ended up doing this. Amazing, yeah. That's yeah. what I love about engineering. I mean, it's like side point, but you can move across, but still use your skills in the way that I think you personally want to. I mean, I started off in aerospace engineering, and I didn't think I'd end up end up doing prosthetics. This Um, is not what I thought I'd be doing with an archaeology degree. (laughs) I was sponsored by Ford Motor Company, so I thought I was going to end up working in the car industry for the rest of my life. There you go. Yeah, it's a real motivator, I think, this this medical aspect. Um, uh, Sometimes you need to see someone who's benefited from your work to maintain Mm -hmm. that motivation. Um, And that's hard to find and hard to do, but but something we need to keep doing um, in the centre, I think, anyway. I think so. I think it's, at least for me, I know on my bad days, it's when I'm you know, fed up of doing an analysis or something's not working and I need to figure out how. The thing that motivates me through it is knowing that at the end of it, someone is going, hopefully, someone is going to benefit from it because I just, I don't, I don't know what would pull me through those points. I mean, PhD life is great, but I think as with everything, there are downtimes and the thing that pulls you out, at least the thing that pulls me out is, is knowing this is going to benefit people. Um, and whilst it's a military context right now, a lot of stuff starts in the military that rolls out to help so many more people. Well, Manchester Arena bombing, you know, we saw a lot of the benefit on the medical care mm. was because of the military, you know, um, because of that. Um, I'd just like to come back on your sort of comment on doing your PhD. So um, research is not only about the research outputs in terms of the papers and everything, it's also about the outputs in terms of the individual. Yeah. 
Um, and so a PhD specifically is a training degree. And so the intention is that you, as PhD graduates, doctors in whatever, um, will actually have the skills and the capability to do many more different things. And, and that's also important to note, which is why in the annual report for the CBIS, we generally include sort of alumni sections where we say, well, this is what they've gone on to do and this is what they're doing now and achieving. So there's direct benefit from the research outputs, but there's this indirect, broader benefit, I would say, potentially, because that individual has a lifetime yeah. to affect some change, there's this broader benefit through what they will achieve in the future. And we should really recognise that. It's, it's really important. Um, and the whole educational process, you know, from undergraduate beyond. I mean, that's where we at a university have perhaps our biggest societal impact. Our graduates going on and changing the world um, and maybe losing contact with the institution that they came from, but actually having benefited from it. Mm. So when you go through that dark patch in your PhD, um, remember that, that actually it's yeah. not just the specific research that matters, it's the fact that you're getting through that and that beyond this, you will go and do some great things. Here's hoping. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's actually quite nice not knowing what you want to do next or what is coming next to you and have this thing kind of planned up. No, so that terrifies me. You kind of know you're going to be going to a hospital doing this or mm. I'm especially like, no ideas. I'm quite enjoying it. That terrifies me. That's good. <laughs> I like to have a plan. I mean, I think every PhD has a real sort of dark night of the soul. Yeah. where you sort of hit the wall and sometimes yeah. that's in the first year sometimes that's in the third year um, but I think pretty much every PhD gets that and I think it's the recognition that you actually might not be achieving as much as you had originally thought you would want to right yeah. and, that, and, and everybody gets to that uh, and that's just life and we all deal with that um, I think the academic process the academic process is so submitting papers for publication, getting negative comments back, the whole peer review process and everything. So I think academia has a lot of sort of rejection in it yeah. all the way through and it, it continues for me every single day and I think uh, you have to be a certain type of person to be able to stay in that because actually you're just always experiencing that. Um, but you sort of, there are also successes that you, that, you know you grab hold of. Mm. Um, but it's a fantastic career because you do get to drive it in a direction that you want it to go into, um, not exclusively, but you can shape the direction you're going into. You know, CBIS is an example. You know, mm. I could shape this. You know, nobody said we want to develop a centre for blast injury studies at Imperial College. You know, apply for it here. No, we did it. We made it happen from nothing, um, yeah. and because we wanted to and the permissive environment around us allowed it to happen um, and it was important and it was the right thing to do. There are plenty of other things that I've tried to start and haven't come off because they weren't so important or significant. And when people ask me about about how, how my PhD is going and things, um, particularly when I'm, I'm feeling a little bit maybe uneasy about am I making progress, am I not? My response, and I actually believe this, is the lows of, of PhD or research life are really low. They feel really low, but the highs feels so much higher than I think a lot of other things because you know you're in control of that and you know that if you have achieved something it's because of the work that you have put in I mean with your team with your supervisors mm. and things but you're driving that and I think that's so powerful in such a good way as well um which is kind of addictive 
I know this doesn't necessarily make things something, but it's 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 an addictive sort of thing that you yeah. know you know that when you put in the work, you're going to achieve something and see that either mm. in you or in your work or something around you. Yeah. Um, I suppose if it wasn't, you wouldn't go back after that. That's what we're in for. <laughs> That's what you're in for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're okay, a bit tight for time, but do you mind talking about how you how you set up Zebus? Sure. Yeah. So how shall I say this? Well. I had a PhD student, one of my very, I think my very first PhD student, Adam Hill, a very good guy, very creative guy, brilliant at uh, strategy and vision and networking. I mean, really fantastic. Um, so he did his BSc in surgery and anesthesia in the middle of his medical degree and then wanted to do a PhD in orthopedics with me. So that's what he did. So he was like this other student I was just mentioning. And... Um, so he did his PhD in shoulder biomechanics, if I recall, and then went back to medicine and joined the military. And so he was a military medic and came to me in the summer of 2008 and said, basically, this is biomechanics. You've got vehicle designers who are brilliant. You've got medics who are brilliant. But in the middle, there's nobody who really understands the effect of the environment on the individual. And so he said it's biomechanics, which is the science of how forces and deformations interact with the body. And he introduced me to the incoming defence professor of trauma and orthopaedics, Colonel John Clasper, and said, well, let's, let's see if there's anything we can do together. And that's how we started. And Aral Ramasamy was um, a registrar, a major in the army, um, an orthopaedic surgeon as well who had started his PhD part-time somewhere else um, and then came fully in with us and did all the early work on heel fractures and amputations in the centre. And as we were doing that, we developed a strategy that basically said we really needed to do something big here. Um, very good PA, uh, postdoc of mine, um, Spiros Mazuros, who was a postdoc who had done his PhD with me, um, we went to one of the military charities and said, this guy is committed to this. This is important. It's about leadership and people. He's important. He's key. We need this engineer. Can we secure his future somehow? And so um, ABF, the Army Benevolent Fund, gave us his salary to work as a research fellow. And so we secured him for a while, for long enough. We had Aru Ramasamy, who was working on the clinical work. Um, and... We had, we, so we had the leadership and we had some resource. And then we made the case for a centre for actually doing the difficult things that can't be done simply with individual PhD students or individual research projects. And so therefore, really the case was that we needed some coordinating function, we needed some central resource, we needed long-term resource, we needed technician support, we needed to be able to invest in difficult science and difficult engineering, not just the quick wins, although we've done quite a few quick wins, in order to prove that we can do it and to secure the funding. And then we gained massive military support, like massive military support, where they basically said, yes, we buy into this, we support this. Of course, they couldn't fund it directly because MOD had its own constraints, but recognising the importance. And so we basically went around talking to those who could potentially fund this. And I even remember, I, I mean, listen to this. So this was a long time ago. I bought a new suit, uh, I wore a tie, I don't know if I'm wearing a tie, and we did a sort of a research day 
for all the veterans' charities that we could think of. And there were loads of key people in the room. We did it in this building, and we had good military representation. And we presented the research that we were doing, which was good, but not much, because we didn't have that much resource, and we presented our vision. And as a result of that, the Royal British Legion basically were persuaded um, to fund us and said, how much do you need? Um, for how long? And so they have funded us for, well, at the moment it's 10 years, and we'll see how much longer they'll continue to fund us for. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, connections, people. Um, and, the, you know, the first difficult thing that we wanted to do was to replicate Underbody Blast, which is why we built our Anubis, our Underbody Blast simulator. You know, that cost a lot of money, and, you know, I don't know if you've been through a discussion on that. You should do a podcast with Nick Newell on how that came to be. So he was then one of the first PhD students in the centre, and uh, he's now a research fellow in mechanical engineering. And uh, he basically had to contact hundreds of companies, and none of them wanted to build this thing. They were worried about us blowing up our building. <laughs> uh, and eventually one company made it, and it was brilliant. And we still use it now with some adjustments. So, uh, yeah, to do the difficult things requires long-term results, uh, and that's the key. But what we also do in the centre is we secure external resource for other projects. So, you know, I'm always writing grants. The, the, the Cambodia project is a separate one that we haven't spoken about. The yeah. Sri Lanka and Beirut one I have, but the Cambodia one, for example, is, is, is great. It's really looking at prosthetics, um, particularly focusing at through knee prosthesis for through knee amputees. Um, and medically and functionally, through knee amputations are better than above knee amputations. So we're an above knee amputation. You know all about this. I should stop. But anyway, um, and so if we are promulgating that learning, that through knee amputations are better, then we expect in the future to have more through knee amputations. Therefore, we need prostheses that work well for through knee amputations. There are such prostheses available. They are super expensive, super complicated, require a lot of maintenance, and are not available to most of the world. So the, the, the Cambodia project, funded by um, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council here in the UK, is to develop a through-knee prosthesis that can be made and maintained and is functionally appropriate for Cambodia and other countries, but we're particularly working in Cambodia. And that's phase one, and that's doing going very well. And phase two is actually to move that on to paediatric through-knee amputees because they don't have um, any prostheses that are suitable for them at the moment. So, yeah, CBIS is always stretching and pushing out um, its learning into other areas, other relevant areas. I like that in the end it just comes back down to people doing what they think is worthwhile, basically. That's right, and you have to have a, an environment. I use the phrase permissive environment. You have to have that, and I think the institutional support at Imperial College is really strong. So, um, for example, I mean, the Royal British Legion fund the direct costs of the research. This is charitable money that's being used to pay for the PhD students and whatever. Mm. It doesn't pay for my time at all in any way. It doesn't pay for the lights and the space that we have and refurbishment of buildings or anything like that. That comes from the institution. And so that's a real contribution from the university. And, and so they're saying, by having this environment, they're saying, we support it. Um, and so you need that, that environment to support that as well. So it's not just individuals, it's something about the structure and the organisation of the university that, that makes this work. I like that. That's a happy note to end on. 
positive thing that actually with a vision, good leadership and um, had the other one in my head, vision, good leadership and, and a lot of hard work and that long term sustainability of it, we can achieve so much. Yeah. So, and so much that's positive. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for my your time. Pleasure.